This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Distortion is a certainty, and there's no point declaring it can't happen here. It's already here. So, what are we going to do about it? About misinformation and those who would mess with our minds and elections. Are you concerned with fake news and disinformation in Canada? Not really. It really comes down to are you willing to look into the information you're trying to feed yourself and the information that you're trying to project out into the world, right? If you're constantly being told what to believe and what to think and what to say, that's more of a you thing than a Canada thing. So I don't blame Canada. I blame the person or the people. Absolutely. I think it's a very important uh, issue. It's important to have uh, um, reflective and accurate information and such. Uh, I think fake news is uh, definitely misleading and can often uh, construe uh, misinterpretations of reality. Well, I am concerned about fake news because there's so much info out there already uh, with Wikipedia leaks and everything going on. Like, you never know what kind of source uh, is true. Like, I'm in school and just source checking is a big thing. Like you have to check every every source that you have. So it's fake news makes it harder now to know what's true and what's not. Coming into the 2019 federal election, there were widespread concerns regarding disinformation campaigns, the prospect of foreign interference, social media advertising and manipulation, and fake news. In fact, the federal government enacted legislation designed to foster greater transparency on political advertising. But on the heels of elections elsewhere, the prospect of online harms during the election appeared very real. Taylor Owen, the Beaverbrook Chair in Media, Ethics and Communications in the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University, set out to find out what was actually taking place online. He led the Digital Democracy Project, which studied the media ecosystem in the run-up to and during Canada's October 2019 federal election by monitoring digital and social media and by conducting both regular national surveys and a study of metered samples of online consumption. The project released reports throughout the campaign on how social media was being used, political advertising trends, the role of fact-checking, and the presence of misinformation and fake news. He joined me on the podcast shortly after the election to discuss. Taylor, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Hey, my pleasure. I'm a fan. Okay, well, it's great to have you on. And, you know, there's been a a few people that have been incredibly active during this election campaign beyond, of course, the leaders. And I think you're one of them uh, because your Digital Democracy Project has put in an enormous number of uh, new new reports and ideas out into the public sphere. So why don't we start there? If you can explain a little bit what the project is about. Yeah, sure. I mean, so the the genesis of it was a sort of observation that um, in many of the other countries that have had big elections since uh, the 2016 U.S. election, where there was substantial foreign interference, 
there was a community of scholars and sometimes um, civil society and even for-profit actors who were monitoring, monitoring the information space during the election. And we didn't see that community existing in a, in a robust way in Canada in the lead up to this election. So we, so the, that's sort of the genesis of the project was this, our, our perception that there, we could add something by doing some pretty wide scale monitoring of the media ecosystem during the election. So the, the way it kind of came together is we have a team at McGill that's being run by a computer science professor named Derek Ruths. And they are, um, they led and are still doing a fairly large uh, data collection project on of the media ecosystem. So they're collecting as much Twitter as possible, um, Facebook public posts, uh, all of Reddit, all news published and distributed during the election. Um, so really just looking at sort of all, what are the ways in which we can capture the public discourse during an election. Um, but where we think we, maybe we added some methodological capacity to even what's been happening in other countries or what's been implemented in other countries is we tried to pair that online data collection activity with uh, a number of survey mechanisms. And the reason for this is that in most of these other studies and other elections, they've been able to perhaps spot disinformation campaigns or say something about the narratives that were emerging during the elections, but they really didn't get at behavioral change. So did exposure to those kinds of narratives or that kind of potentially problematic content, whether it be foreign influence or just fake news campaigns or whatever it might be, did that actually change the behavior of citizens during an election? So for that, we worked with Peter Lowen, a political scientist at the University of Toronto, and his team, where they ran national surveys every week um, for nine weeks. And they ran a, what's called a metered survey, which is a sample of Canadians that allowed us to collect all of their online data consumption, online um, consumption, web consumption. Um, so we saw everything that they saw over the course of a period of time during the election and surveyed them on the front and back end of that. Uh, and we did an active survey sample where we sort of recruited Twitter users and Facebook users off the platform itself and brought them into a, a panel survey. So we had these, these wide variety of mechanisms, and really we were just trying as much as possible to shed, shed some light during the election on, on what was happening in the media ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, it's really, from a Canadian perspective, unique to see that this kind of mass data collection, at least by within an academic environment, taking a look at what people are actually doing, surveying them to, th to in a sense, get a sense of what they think they're doing or what they say that they're doing, <laughs> yeah. and then being able to put all of that together. And I know that over the course of the election campaign, you were putting out regular reports that touch on a pretty wide range of issues. We, we did. So we, we weekly tried to release... Um, some set of findings, either from little experiments that we ran each week or just reflections on some of the trends we were seeing. Um, it, it ended up being much more difficult than we expected. Um, I think there's a reason that there are not a large number of people doing these kinds of things in real time during the election. It's, it's not easy to put out things that have sort of a degree of academic rigor to them on that kind of time scale. And I think we're probably going to be able to say a lot more after the, now, really after in this period after the election, where we can take this 
what is a really massive data set of um, all this online behavior, and then, all, and particularly on the metered survey, all this, all the data that this sample of, um, of participants, all the web data and all the, site, the content from the websites they saw, and really start to make sense of that, and hopefully tell some sort of relatively um, robust story about the election. Yeah, so the work will certainly continue. Why don't, it does, why don't we? Yeah, it does. Why don't we zero in on on some of the studies that you did put out because they're they're, yeah, sure cause they're still fresh. You know, one of the things I know that you took a look at was, as you mentioned, social media use during election campaign. And do you have a sense yeah. for, of uh, based on the data, what does it tell you about about Canadians' usage, and does it increase during these these kinds of activities? Yeah, I mean, it, look, it seemed to spike um, quite significantly during the election. So uh, we, we tried to create measures of um, political activity because we were really, we didn't care about all activity on these platforms, but really what could be construed as political. And that activity on Twitter, sort of activity on the main hashtags by partisans, by um, political journalists, by um, candidates themselves, that cumulative discourse um, grew by 800% um, from pre, pre- and post-election writ period. Um, and on fa- on Facebook, it was 250. On public posts on Facebook, which importantly is, is what we can see, right? We can see the public posts, not the private posts, um, went up by 250%. So absolutely there was a spike. Um, uh, that, that's that's, that's yeah, absolutely, sorry, just to interrupt, that's a, that's a massive increase. I mean, is that being, does the data tell you that's being fueled or do you have an idea whether or not that's being fueled by the political parties and the politicians themselves or is it the public that's fueling yeah. the discussion or is it a bit of both kind of responding to what each is seeing taking place uh, yeah, in your favorite all venue? The, all the above. I mean, all like, so we track, on Twitter, for example, we clustered um, different users. So we had a general public user base, which were just people who posted in any of the election or political related hashtags. We had all political journalists in one cluster. We had all candidates in another cluster. And we had sort of kind of some thought leader type um, category. So on on each of each of those, um, the usage spiked massively. But one thing that was really, really clear was that um, the overall discourse was highly partisan. So you could see very clear demarcations of partisan clustering across all of those groups, where um, individuals with particular ideological or partisan affiliations were speaking largely to themselves and sharing content that confirmed broadly the narratives of those political parties. Um, and so that, that I think, is, is a key aspect. So yes, it spiked, but also, we really did see on Twitter, particularly, um, this partisan clustering. So that's super interesting. I mean, it suggests that that we that we're creating a large public sphere, but one in which we've got a series almost of echo chambers where people are just reverberating the same messaging with within wherever their partisan views happen to land. Is that is that the case, or do you did you find some amount yeah. of crossover? Is there, in a sense, is there the ability yeah. to persuade, or are people just becoming yeah. more and more firm in their views when they venture into, say, Twitter yeah. or Facebook? So that was one of the, when we saw this clustering, that was one of the questions, right? Like, is this, is this a filter bubble or an echo chamber, right? Is this the, the way the system is um, filtering content to people? Um, based on pre-existing behavior, 
or is this people self-selecting into these kinds of conversations, creating echo chambers? And so because we had these survey experiments running, we could test that, try and test for that. And one of the things we do is we exposed people in a survey experiment to a broad range of news and saw and, and um, asked them which ones they wanted to consume, right? And overwhelmingly, people choose content that supports their, their predisposed positions in that experiment, right? So that's a really clear result. Um, but then we can test if continued exposure to that kind of political messaging changes their beliefs. And we found it actually does. It actually strengthens their perspectives and their pre-existing positions. So that could be the spillover effect of this, right, is that we know people are choosing and self-selecting into communities, both online and in these survey experiments, choosing content that confirms their pre-existing views, and that over time their beliefs on that issue become more rigid and um, strong. Right, so that, so that rather than seeing crossover, we see a uh, affirming up of people's positions in large measure, I suppose, because they are hearing the same things or reading the same things continuously that reinforce the views that they came in with to begin to, right at the start. Yes. I mean, that, that's our perception as of now. Yeah. Hmm. One of the, but we are related to that though. Just one, one final thing on that is that in the, in this, in the survey thing, there's another element here, which is <clears throat> whether we, um, as a society more broadly are polarized from one another and how we view people in other clusters, in other ideological clusters. And in some of the survey work, um, Peter's team was able to get at some of that too and actually found fairly high degrees of what they call effective polarization, which is just like um, core dislike for other political parties or other supporters um, based just because they are members of an opposing group. And, and that is something that I don't think people really thought existed to the degree it did in the Canadian political system, but it, it, it came through pretty, pretty strongly. So in the, you know, in the aftermath of, of the, the election results, where we've had a fair amount of discussion about polarization, more on a geographic basis between provinces or perhaps urban, urban rural, you're saying that you see the same kind of thing taking place in social media. Yeah, in terms of what people are sharing, who they're following, and the content they are consuming, it it is polarized. Yeah, the one of the other areas that that you focused on and and had the opportunity to do so in large measure because of new legislation that required disclosures of political advertising on social media was to take a closer mm. look at that kind of advert of advertising, particularly I know on Facebook. What are the kinds of things that you found yeah. taking place? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, that preface, I think, is important that um, that this, the, our ability to see some of these ads is in part because of Bill C-76, which mandated these ad archives. Um, I think it, it's, we were able to see Facebooks because they've done a much better job at making that data public than the other platform companies. Um, you'll remember Google, right, decided that they were not going to sell political ads um, rather than um, impose or, or develop the archive for the Canadian market, which I think is an interesting point that's worth exploring um, why that might be the case. Um, but Facebook had already implemented this in the U.S. to their credit and and then deployed that ad archive system to Canada uh, in a fairly effective way. And so for this, we there were a couple of projects that we partnered with that were kind of leading this. One was at a team at the NYU um, Engineering School, which had been done, had done some of the best ad archive work in the United States, 
and the Ryerson Leadership Lab uh, did a project on this too. And I think it, it tells a few things about the ad system. And we we were, it, they and we to a certain degree were able to see which what political parties were doing, how they were using that tool of Facebook advertising uh, differently than each other. And there are some differences. I mean, the Conservative Party used it much more as a bro- extension of broadcast advertising where they were blasting similar messages to large clusters of people in, across different areas of the country, whereas the Liberals were using micro-targeting, it looks like, to a much greater effect, um, using custom lists, which it doesn't look like the Conservative Party was doing. Um, and you could see some of the third-party activity, right? So Canada Proud emerged as by far the biggest third-party ad spender. I mean, more than the next seven, I think, combined or something. So there's no question that they were using that tool to great effect. Um, but it, it, so, so that, that's one piece of it. But then because we had access and visibility to the ads, and this is a new thing, right, that we can see not just who spent what, but actually what the ads themselves were that they spent on, um, we could do some experiments with the ads themselves. So we used this survey tool again to test whether some of those ads that the campaigns were running um, were working, whether they're having a positive and negative effect on voters. Um, and that could tell us something about the nature of this kind of advertising more generally. And do the advertising target, you know, coming back to the partisan playground yeah. findings, are people advertising to reinforce the views of, of people who already have a particular view, or is advertising seen as an opportunity to see if they can't pull some people away from one perspective into theirs? That's interesting. We, I, we don't have that analysis yet. I think that's something we'll want to be looking for. Um, the most of the stuff we did was around negative versus positive framing. So um, the experiment we ran was on whether these negative framings versus positive framings work and what the effect each one has on people's beliefs of the party and on the issue. And on that, we can show that the, the um, that uh, negative ads, just as we know, <laughs> work better. Um, but they make people angry at the people who posted them as well as the people they are <laughs> they are. Uh, they are directed at. Um, so they actually kind of increase polarization, I think, mm-hmm. rather than decrease it. But they do get the message across. But no, I think on the micro-targeting stuff, we will we will be able to do more um, going forward on that. But uh, it is a limitation of this, right, in that we only have very access to very limited targeting data. And that's something that many of the civil society and academic groups using these data in, in the U.S. in particular have been flagging that um, – Ad targeting legislation needs to broaden the mandatory requirements of um, data release there because it's just too limited on what we can see right now. It's very general targeting information. Right. So a more transparent approach would really provide a great deal more insight. I just wanted to to circle back just to make sure that I understood. So negative advertising is effective in terms of, I guess, reinforcing a negative view. But you're suggesting that people also have a negative uh, perspective on the person doing the negative postings as well? Exactly. It drives up negativity on both. But it, it works to get the, the message of the ad transmitted. So people have higher negative perceptions of the party at which it's directed, but also of that who posted it. Um, the, the inverse is actually, to a certain degree, true, too, that positive ads um, 
seem to reduce that variable of effective polarization that I mentioned, of just latent dislike for the other political group. Um, uh, but the parties just aren't using it very much. So I think the parties could, if they use more positive ads, decrease some of this effective polarization. Um, but they're just not doing it. Yeah, that's really interesting. The the as, as you know, the the Hurley Burley was a extremely popular and incredibly insightful podcast series that ran throughout the campaign, oh, yeah. and there was a lot of talk about negative advertising with the pervasive view, I think, of those of of people like Scott Reed, Jenny Byrne, that you needed to move towards negative advertising. But it sounds like your finding says yes, they do work, but they also have real costs, which is. The, I guess the trade-off that campaigns have to make when they decide just how negative to go or if to embrace a more positive approach. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's some blowback there. But I, I would think they would political campaigners would acknowledge that that's the case and they see that risk as, as worth taking. Um, I think there's a broader question, though, about what that kind of negative ad- advertising does to our broader political discourse and if it leads to just everybody disliking the opposing side more. Um, that's probably not a great outcome in the end of the day. No, it's not. Um, but I, I do think that one, one more thing on the political advertising, as it's worth framing here, is that I we started with the, the mention of C76, and I I think looking at the who was advertising and what they were doing, um, it is highly likely that a, uh, a type of political advertising during an election was dissuaded by the very fact that it was going to be made public. Um, I, I think we saw relatively clean digital advertising campaigns in the ads we've seen. Um, and I think it's an open question over who else would have used that tool um, had it remained secret. Um, and it's a counterfactual, obviously, because we don't know. But I, I think it's worth reflecting on when we look at the effectiveness of these kinds of policies. Yeah, that's a terrific insight. It's consistent with those that have pushed, of course, for more transparency in any number of different places, where if you know that what you do may be revealed to the public, there's greater transparency, There's some, you're in the spotlight a little bit, it has a, it ha- can have real effects on the way people behave, uh, whether that's what, with your in, in your in government or corporate accountability or in this context, knowing that the ad campaigns you run would be made available in this manner, might have some thinking twice about what they chose to do. Yeah, and particularly when you combine it with other elements of C76, like limits on digital spending, right? So there might actually be not just perception downsides to being made public, but actually um, penalties as well. So the legislation... Isn't perfect, as you've already mentioned, ways that it could be improved, yeah. but it, it has, has has did have some positive effects on this campaign. Yeah, you know, one of I the. I think so. Yeah, I think so. It's, 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 it's the, I think it's, for those that were actively engaged in some of those policy issues, I think that that's it's a great takeaway. You know, one of the other ways, of course, that people become disheartened isn't just through the advertising, but is through the range of the information itself, sometimes false information, mm-hmm. sometimes active disinformation. I know that you took a look both at disinformation campaigns as well as fact-checking and the yeah. impact that that has. Maybe we could take a, take a discuss a little bit of those. From a fact-checking perspective, yeah. we're seeing more and more groups I know engage in fact-checking. Does it have much of an impact? Yeah, I mean, so we wanted to look at that on whether exposure to correct information in response to potentially false information or a predisposition to believe something on a topic that wasn't true, 
whether that could actually change people's opinions on it. And um, and we found two main things, which w- one is relatively positive and the other shows its limits. Um, I mean, for one, um, we found we we did experiments on both climate change facts and immigration facts. And on both of them, we found that for people who believed false things on either of those, so for refugees, it was a number of refugees coming to Canada. And on climate change, it was some basic facts around the Paris Agreement and the causes of climate change. Um, If people were presented with corrected facts, they would change their their, their, uh, their own facts. Right, so they would update their knowledge on the issue and and agree to and respond with those new facts. So that's the positive thing that fact checking can work. Then the the limit of it is that for partisans, it does not change their policy position on those issues, which I think tells us something really interesting about uh, how people come to their policy positions. It's a lot more than just the facts. Right, so on immigration, it's more than just how many absolute number of immigrants they think we have, we we or refugees we accept a year. And on climate change, it's not just about whether they think climate change is human induced; it's about something more. And so, yes, we can change their knowledge on an issue, but we can't necessarily those that fact checking exercise doesn't change their policy positions for partisans. Right, so it's pretty discouraging. <laughs> it's awfully discouraging, actually, when you think about it. If you've got people yeah. who who know from a factual perspective that the policy they're advocating for, the underlying facts are inconsistent with the policy, but yet they still will advocate for the policy because it's consistent with their broader partisan view. Right, and and, and in, I mean, in part, that's understandable, right? Because people support policies for this wide range of reasons. It might be values-based. It might be identification with a particular ideology, right? There's, it might be the reason, the the perception of other ad, of people who have pushed of alternative policies of the, in the past, right? There's all sorts of reasons we might come to believe certain things, but it's or support certain policies, but it's. But facts are just a piece of that, unfortunately. Um, and then, look, we, there was another sort of really discouraging aspect that we found here, which was that, or discouraging, but I think offers some pause, particularly to the media and journalists, which is that it actually didn't matter who was doing the fact-checking. It had the same level of effect. So we tested whether it mattered if a political candidate, a friend on social media, or a news, a reputable news outlet, um, one of the top news, uh, most trusted news outlets in the country, um, and it actually made no difference. Which, um, if I were a journalist or a media organization, it would probably give me pause. It would. It suggests that people are people. People may be open to hearing new facts, but the the degree to which they look at what are otherwise viewed as reliable, authoritative media sources is just one of a number of different places where they can get their information and, and might look at the, those sources as being roughly equivalent. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and uh, we did a number of tests around the perceptions of the media more broadly. And, and, and there's some positive things in that, I mean, people thought that uh, people had pretty high levels of trust in traditional media in the country at much higher levels than we see in other in the United States, for example. Um, but we also found, kind of surprisingly, that the the more media someone consumed, 
the more likely they were to be misinformed on policy issues and election issues. So again, that would, if I was a journalist, that would give me pause on the effect I'm having on the electorate. When, if I, if I, if I as a citizen consume more journalism, I am more likely to be misinformed on the main issues of the election. Well, I wonder if that just speaks to there's so many different, we're being bombarded with so many different issues and perspectives that when you, the, the more you consume, sorting through all of those different issues becomes <laughs> increasingly challenging. Um, yeah, I think that's right. And, and partisanship, when you layer that on, makes all these variables worse. And that's really one of the things we, we sort of landed on here is that partisanship really does have a prodigious um, force. In many of these variables, and so if you add partisanship on top of media consumption, um, and if you add social media consumption on top of that, to the degree of social media consumption, it's the worst. So the the worst, the most misinformed people we tested were partisans who consume a lot of media, mostly on social. Right, people who who uh, otherwise, if you were to ask, I assume might tell you that they believe that uh, that they are very well informed, and here's why they're so well informed. Absolutely. And that's you and they hit the nail on the head there. I mean, that's the variable there because we tested the difference between being uninformed and misinformed, right? So uninformed people were actually very willing to be corrected because and actually might not be that a problem, not much of a problem in terms of disinformation, which we'll talk about, because um, they're they're OK at being re, uh, being um, corrected. It's the misinformed people who are, who are think they know, think they are right, who are the bigger problem. <laughs> I mean, you, you you mentioned disinformation or misinformation online, and it provides a good segue. That's, that's of course, one of the reasons we saw some of the legislative activity to try to expose activity, uh, expose advertising online to address that issue. And one of the real concerns about interference with the campaign fueled by yeah. disinformation. I know that you, you attempted to try to take a, a look at some of that activity as well, to the extent to which to, to identify whether or not it was happening in Canada. What did you find? Yeah, so all through the election when sort of events emerged that people were suggesting might be disinformation campaigns or inauthentic um, activity or representative of inauthentic activity, uh, we took a pretty close look at it and we'll um, uh, more so now, we have a bit more time. Um, but the, the high-level takeaway is that we did not see a large amount of either fake news or um, news, um, uh, false news designed to appear like traditional journalism or regular journalism, um, or the kind of inauthentic behavior that we've seen in other countries, either domestic or international. So hashtags being fueled by bot activity, for example, or, um, or false narratives and memes sort of spreading virally in an inauthentic way. Um, we did not see a lot of it. There was some of it, absolutely, um, but not a lot. And for what we did see, it appeared to be, and this kind of a, per, a perverse effect of an earlier thing we talked about, which was sort of the, the clustering of the online discourse, that clustering, it looks like, provided a bit of a buffer for the spread and distribution of that problematic content. So if you look at um, uh, something like the Buffalo Chronicle stories that kind of took off two big ones, which were sort of probably the clearest cases of fake news distribution and inauthentic behavior that emerged. Um, those were just largely distributed amongst on, um, conservative communities on Twitter and Facebook. And that sort of, to me, impl implies that 
the the problematic content we're seeing confirmed existing biases rather than changed behavior on voting. So that doesn't mean it's not a problem, right? It's still it probably made our discourse a bit more toxic, and it probably led um, certain partisans to feel more entrenched in their views and more negatively about other political parties. Um, but it probably didn't change votes. Um, and that, that's that's something we can pull out of this conversation. Hmm. And that's you know that, I guess that's encouraging on one level to that the, the the fears of disinformation campaigns, whether foreign influenced or otherwise, didn't emerge. At the same time, mm-hmm. though, I think the identification of the impact that that fake news has, again, not to necessarily deceive or bring people over into one one from one camp to another, but rather to further entrench the kind of divide that it sounds like you you've identified across a range of different studies, really from social media use more broadly to misinformation to even the way people are engaging in advertising. The same trend keeps reoccurring uh, in in a number of the different studies you conducted. It does. And like, so, so one thing that um, you probably saw that um, analysis on Twitter that kind of took off mid-campaign around the potential foreign influence of Trump supporters in the, on certain hashtags in Canada. So this researcher found a, um, a pretty high level of Make America Great identification on accounts talking, um, driving the anti-Trudeau hashtags that popped up. And so and was suggesting that these were bots or inauthentic coordinated behavior. So we, one of the things we did is sort of do a little bit of a deep dive on, on these anti-Trudeau hashtags. And there was about 40 that emerged during the election. So we looked at, over a week, about 700,000 tweets on those 40 hashtags, trying to see if, like, is that the case, right? Is there, because is, I think that's a, that would be a, a significant concern, right? If there was a coordinated Make, Make America Great Again community, that were bombarding the Canadian election. And what we found was there were a lot of accounts that had these kinds of identification, but they didn't look to be American. It looked like pretty clearly they were Canadian. They weren't necessarily tweeting in a manner that suggested they were bots or even inauthentic or even coordinated. But it, what it looks like they were were just a, a bunch of partisans who tweeted a lot, right? Tweeted a hundred times a day, um, largely things that confirmed their existing views or their hatred of whatever it might be. Um, and we're just sort of having this conversation, this collective conversation under these anti-Trudeau hashtags. And when we looked at other hashtags that were pro-Trudeau or pro-NDP, we actually found very similar types of behavior. These people who are just tweeting a lot, with fairly toxic kind of memes and content, um, speaking to each other, can reconfirming their pre-existing biases. Um, and so, so to your point, that tells us something important about our political discourse, right? That there are these toxic sub-communities. Um, they are highly polarized. They are not exposed to information that in any way challenges their, their beliefs. Um, but is that inauthentic? I don't know. 
Yeah. What's notable as well is, as you point out, that this is not a left issue or a right issue, although each side might think of it in that terms. Uh, you see the same kinds of behavior you're suggesting occurring, whether you're on the left of the political spectrum or on the right. Yeah, I should say we see the similar types of behavior, but very different magnitudes, um, at least in the Canadian context, where the scale of the activity on the anti-Trudeau hashtags was um, radically disproportionate from the ones on the existing on the left. And, and I don't have a good explanation for why that's the case. Okay, so that, so that, well, the the types of behavior are similar in terms of just the the volume of activity. There are differences depending on which side of the absolutely. political spectrum you look at. In the Canadian context, in this election, absolutely right. Now, just thinking ahead before we close, you, you've talked yeah. about the impact of Bill C seventy six. Talked about the prospect of some further research, and the likelihood, all the the kinds of things you could do now that you've got that large data set. From a pure policy yeah. perspective, do you have a a, yeah. a a takeaway or two about what governments ought to be thinking about as we look ahead? Next election is obviously a number of years away, but these kinds of issues aren't yeah. going away. Might be another number of years away. <laughs> could, could be a few months, I guess, too. Which I'm greatly hoping it's not. Um, but look, I mean. I think what we talked about on C76 is that the uh, far from perfect, Canada had the advantage of coming after a number of big elections where this problem was being analyzed, right? So just by coming eighth or whatever it was in a series of democratic elections 2016, um, we had the the benefit of hindsight, right, to, to look back and see what happened in those other elections. And the government, um, to their credit, I think, did some things to try and alleviate the low-hanging fruit that were the easiest mechanisms to interfere in an election that we saw in other campaigns. Um, the ban on foreign advertising and foreign money, I think, is a, is an easy, is, was an easy one. The ad archive, making some of this stuff visible, also played a role. Some of the limit, limits on third-party advertising, though controversial, I think probably dissuaded a certain type of activity. Um, the Foreign Interference Committee, I think that, that probably, maybe, I, I don't know, dissuaded certain foreign actors. Now, these are all counterfactuals, and we can't know. Um, but we do know that we did more than what a lot of other countries had done in response to this perceived threat, and we had much less, I think, uh, we had a cleaner election in terms of the information space. Um, so that, I think, is a broad reflection. Um, the other piece of it, though, would be, uh, are we simply regulating and researching, I would say, from our perspective, too, based on previous campaigns and the methods that were revealed in previous campaigns. And so are we studying, regulating for and studying the right things? And I'm not totally convinced we are. I think there's, there's highly likely dark spaces that um, aren't revealed by any of these mechanisms, either what we are allowed to see from the research perspective or um, what is being limited on the regulatory side. Um, and I think there's just a, a broader question about the nature of our political discourse um, in the online space. And is it the kind of discourse that we think ultimately benefits a democracy? And, and that, that's obviously not a, a 
a problem that will be addressed with necessarily more regulation, but I think it's a question we need to ask ourselves. Is this the kind of discourse we think is most beneficial for an election? Um, I don't have a great answer to that, but it's a concern I have. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's certainly a question worth asking and, and to ensure that we get informed answers or at least an informed discussion around it. I think we're reliant on mm-hmm. on precisely the kind of data and reports that you've been generating. So it's a it's a it's mm-hmm. a, I think a really important service that you've pulled together. Thank you so much. Thank you and thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, my pleasure. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy Brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.